welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Joanne Hippolyte grew up hearing very little about black history. She was born in Haiti, but raised in Boston, where she went to an Irish Catholic school where they spent a lot of time talking about American history, but not much about black people's role in it. Joanne wanted to tell the stories she rarely heard. She made a career out of helping tell the important ways in which black people influenced all aspects of American culture. Now she helps others learn that history. She's a curator at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. She focuses on the achievements of the African diaspora and how it shaped America. South Florida played an important role for her. She got her Ph.D. at the University of Miami, then spent eight years as History Miami's chief curator before taking her talents to D.C. She joins us to talk about her national role with the Smithsonian and why she still calls Miami home. Welcome, Joanne. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for this uh, opportunity to sit here with you all, even though I'm not in South Florida, but with South Florida. I know. It, 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 we, we'd love to be able to grab you when you're in town next time, but it's great uh, to just have this little this time to be able to, to talk a little bit about this uh, South Florida history and, and how you took that, uh, how you took that beyond. Um, Joanne, so you were born in Haiti, but raised in Boston, and now you're in D.C., but I've heard that you you still call Miami home. Why is why is Miami still home for you? Yeah, I've definitely got one of those stories where of hmm. migrations moving around quite a bit, right? So my family moved from Haiti to Boston um, in the 1970s, and that's where I was raised until I was 18 uh, years old. And then they did that kind of reverse migration. So literally mm. my senior year in high school, they were already planning to move to South Florida. They moved to um, Broward County first and then to uh, Dade County. And um, so I, I remember coming home on graduation day and my house was empty because we were already getting ready to move back to what was closer to Haiti for them, right? Miami, warmer weather and more Caribbean people um, and all of that. And I went off to school. I went off to college and then graduate school and then circled back to Miami which I didn't know very well, uh, to do the PhD program at the University of Miami in the literature department there. They had a fantastic Caribbean studies program happening at the time. And um, that's what brought me to South Florida and to the museum world. We can talk a little bit more about that. I'll, I'll let you um, proceed with asking questions before I keep No, absolutely. Listen, we yeah. love, st- we, we're trying to have mm-hmm. conversations and storytelling here. So this is great. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm really curious about this idea that your folks then come to Miami and because they want to be closer to the to Caribbean people. Um, but I guess so it begs the question, like, what was your growing up like in Boston? You know, someone who's born in Haiti and and then, you know, you're growing up in this uh, a community that's very different from Miami. Yeah, it's a much smaller Caribbean population and Haitian population. There's about there were 60,000 um, uh, in the Haitian population in Boston when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s. It's a little more now, um, but it's nothing like what you see in South Florida, where the you know it's predominantly a foreign-born population. That's not what you saw in Boston. Um, the dynamics are very much it seemed very much black and white in Boston, mm. and in um, here in South Florida, in South Florida, it's very much black and brown mm. <laughs> and some Ooh. white as well. Uh, and of course, there's the 
the um, the temperature is closer to what you find in the Caribbean, the the, the ecology, the landscape, all of that. Uh, um, it's, it feels like home in in for them, um, and for people who are from the Caribbean more than other parts of the United States do. Um, and what's interesting, though, I want to say is they could have moved. That you would think they could have moved to South Florida uh, in the 1960s, right, when they first left, because they did. They went to the, um, New York, and then they went back, and then they came again. Sure. Um, so, but they didn't, and like a lot of other Caribbean um, immigrants who were moving. They went to New York and to the northern states because um, people knew what the South, what was going on in the South during the 1950s, you know, prior to the 1960s and segregation and the way uh, Black people were treated in this country. And so they were smart enough not to think of those as places to land um, first. There were, that now there always was in Miami, a small Caribbean population always and a large Bahamian population. But the, the numbers that you saw going to New York as opposed to um, South in Miami were vastly different. Yeah, I, I can imagine that uh, folks, I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've seen stories written over the years about what it was like for Haitians uh, to arrive in Miami. And, and really, well, I mean, now we have a little Haiti here um, that the populations have, have created here. And, and I'm curious, now just you're with your family growing up in Boston, how did you, how did you identify? How did you find how, connections to your, to your background there? Yeah, I always think of my house as an island. You know, you think about going back to your homeland, the island itself. But I thought of my house as an island. Hmm. My, uh, yeah, that we we in that house we spoke Creole and some English, and we ate um, predominantly Haitian food. There were these boxes that would come to us from um, Haiti and the Caribbean that had all of the like wonderful treats and goods. You know, the, the candies and the deuce, the sweets, the um, the mangoes that we couldn't get um, in Boston. Uh, that were you know, so we would open those up, and it was like having the island with us there and the culture there with us and um, outside of my house I was I was in an African-American neighborhood predominantly black um, in Dorchester and um, I loved that as well because I got to understand the flavors of um, African-American food the culture I had a lot of friends in that neighborhood the dancing the history of dancing I would go to their churches so early on I had a very strong um, a sense of African-American culture and appreciate and a real appreciation for it as well and then on top of that my parents were you know self-segregating us like busing us out of our neighborhoods which is great because the busing crisis was happening in uh, uh, Boston at the time there was a lot of racial strife and they were sending us to an all-white predominantly white um, predominantly Irish Catholic school in Brookline Massachusetts because they just wanted us to have a strong Catholic education that's very important for certain segments of the Haitian population mm. and um, also just a strong a quality education which they didn't think the local public schools would be able to offer. So talk about all those worlds, right? My Haitian island home and then the African-American community. And I always make this funny little joke that all, all of my friends on my neighborhood used to go down south in the summertime um, and because that's where they would go visit their relatives. And I, I, I thought down south was like a place, like I didn't, like a, like a state. I was right. like, where's down south? The, st the state you know? of down south? Yeah, the state of down <laughs> south, exactly. And um, and then the white Irish Catholic school. So I think that's why I ended up being so um, attracted to studying culture when I got to college. I, I've heard folks here, especially in the Caribbean here in Miami, talk about uh, finding your place when you're when you're Caribbean black, you know, you're Afro-Caribbean uh, among American black and then kind of like um, trying to see how you fit in there because those those communities are are, are disparate here. And I was wondering, how did that how did that affect you growing up in a place in Boston where, you know, from the outside world, white people might have just said, 
you know, they looked at your skin and you say, you're just black. So how did you, how did you find your identity within that? So within the black community, I think there was a, a respect and an understanding of different types of cultures. Um, so in my neighborhood, there were also a couple of Trinidadian families mm. and they would they didn't know much about Haiti. They would ask me where Haiti was and what it was about. And they knew my grandmother didn't speak any English when she was sitting out there um, in the stoop. And to them, I was just a part of the neighborhood. Um, I would say that once I left the neighborhood, I was very much, you know, um, profiled in the same way that all black people um, are often profiled in the United States. And so my neighborhood was considered um, a bad neighborhood because it was predominantly black. It was mm. considered, you know, to be, you know, criminalized in, in a lot of ways. And um, I was recognized as being black, not Haitian. Um, in fact, when people met or talked to me or learned I was Haitian, they would they would think that that was strange. So they had this idea outside of my neighborhood. They had this idea of what they thought Haiti was, uh, which I didn't know where they were getting those perceptions from. But it was largely from the negative media uh, that was emerging uh, during that period of time because of the, the Haitian um, migration crisis. Sure. Tell me a, a little bit about what your what that island home, the island home that your parents created for you inside was like. Um, what was, was Creole spoken at home? What did your what did your table look like? Yes, definitely Creole all day long. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yep. visits from, you know, like a lot of immigrant families, my families moved when we first moved to Boston, we all lived in the same like three story building, three story. It was a home. There was a home on each floor. Hmm. And my, I had relatives up and down each floor so we could go up and down the different apartments and and hang out and visit with each other. So there was also this shared um a uh, village-like atmosphere of taking care of each other and taking care of each other's kids uh, while everyone was working and trying to find their way in this new American land. And they also supported each other by, you know, um, sharing food with each other, bringing meals up and down. That's a very big thing in Haitian culture. Even to this day, people are showing up in my mother's house with certain dishes that they've cooked that the court, that's, and they want to share it with my mother that day, or she sends a dish over to someone else's house. Um, and so you share the cuisine, which is another way of absolutely a building culture. There was Haitian music, compa music, especially in my house playing on the radio, and they would take us to parties uh, that were um, with compa bands. And um, the food is probably one of the most important ways you get the, um, the culture, the types of food, rice and beans every day on the table. Um, Mai uh, Moulin, which is like a, the Haitian version of polenta and guillo, um, the fried pork dish, which is part of our national, one, 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 one part of our national dishes in Haiti, exclusively. That's what I ate seven days a week at every meal <laughs> that was in my home. And they eschewed places like McDonald's or um, they, they just didn't think that they thought that they thought that, that that food was the best to be feeding us, and that was what we were going to get. So oh God, we had I, to beg to get a hamburger yeah, at does. McDonald's. Son of Cuban immigrants, I, I can totally empathize with that. You know, that's not real food was uh, was the saying in my house, it, you know? Yeah, I didn't want to say that, but yeah, they didn't say good things about it. <laughs> I read somewhere, I think it was uh, in the essay uh, that you wrote, that um, you thought Haitians were obsessed with beans, and you weren't, you weren't particularly in, in love with them at, to begin with. Yeah, and we eat beans every single day. And I think Haitians are the only the only Caribbean culture that I've seen that uses every beans, white beans, black beans, red beans, green beans, peas, green peas. All of them are turned into um, the sauce. In, in Haiti, we call it sauce pois. Mm -hmm. um, but the bean sauce, the frijoles negros that you see, all of them become sauces to be poured on white white rice. And talk about the nutrition nutrition in that, right? And the protein and the fiber. Um, th these are part of um, the food 
food landscape in Haiti, and they made sure that it was part of our upbringing. How did having that kind of upbringing and then seeing it, how it compared to the areas around you, especially when you got out of your community, how did that influence you in wanting to study more um, about, you know, black people's influence and, and Haitian influence in the African diaspora? Yeah, I think that it was, you know, it was definitely um, being able early on being mm-hmm. able to see that there were differences between cultures, between what I was seeing with the Irish step dancing versus African American, you know. Yeah, that's a that's <laughs> moves, a yeah? that's a class, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> versus Haitian compa dancing, mm-hmm. and all of it was vibrant and interesting and colorful, right? And so tied to um, your your ethnicity. I think uh, that I understood that there are lots of differences between people um, just in Boston where I was growing up, and um, and that it was important because. We we were we were keeping it. We were somehow maintaining it and using it. You know, doing the, the cultural shows at school and, like I said, having still having the balls, the the parties that you would go to, the Haitian parties. So they were an important part of life. And I think where it clicked for me was really when I got to college because I, I knew these things. Um, so Zora, the anthropologist and great writer um, Zora Neale Hurston has this great quote where she says. Um, uh, she uses anthropology as a lens. She says, I had to see myself like someone else, you know, in order to understand how important it was. So what college let me do was step out of like the uh, intrinsic part of who I was and everything I was experiencing and see the historical dynamics and conditions that were creating that, the, um, the, um, all of the, the, um, traditions, you know, where they were rooted in, the connection to Africa, it helped ground me in, in my African American studies classes, the migration patterns, the whole way that this country has sort of become the wonderful, um, um, you know, place that it is with so many different cultures and um, identities um, coming together uh, to make up what we call America, right, the United States. Right. And I, I'm curious, how did that, you know, when getting to college and and seeing the ways in which uh, black culture and African um, influences had influenced so many parts of America, how did that open your eyes? How did that make you think differently about, you know, the history that you'd learned to that point? It was eye-opening because my parents, you know, they they don't talk about Africa as if Africa is their homeland. They talk about Haiti as if it's the homeland. Sure. And so it's for me to learn about things like drum rhythms and orality and, and, and particularly orality language, right, and how important language is and how it's used in Africa and, and, and noticing those, um, we don't call them retentions, we call them continuities, right, those continuities and changes between African culture and what's happening with Haitian culture or with African, um, with African-American culture, Black seeing, culture, other black cultures. Kind yeah. of seeing that, those connections, how those places and, are, are tied and kind of flow into each other. And they're tangible. Because when I, I went to Nigeria my junior year in college and I felt like, whoa, <laughs> so much of the so much of what I could hear or see or sometimes smell reminded me of either Haiti or aspects of uh, black culture, uh, African-American culture in the United States. And then there was so much more. And that was different as well. I like I, I would imagine like music and food hits you like immediately. Like, wait a minute. Foo foo. I see this in, in the Caribbean and uh, and music beats and what have you being similar and, and what have you. Right, especially akka, that little appetizer that we make in um, Haitian culture. It's made of, um, uh, it's a fritter that's made of beans, um, from black-eyed peas and beans. And yeah, seeing some of the food goods and how they've moved around just like us, just like the people have. And then were made, were either recreated or remade in their own ways uh, here in the United States. 
Well, uh, I want to take just a little break here because I want to come back and talk to you a little bit more about how then Miami helps expand on that story um, to taking you to where you are. We're speaking with Joanne Hippoli. She's the Supervisory Museum Curator of the African Diaspora at the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in just a moment with her. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias. Our guest today is Joanne Hippoli. Um, she is the curator. She's a curator at the Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C., and she spent a lot of time here in Miami as the chief curator at History Miami. Uh, should let you know if you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. Uh, Joanne, so talk to me about, you know, your, your eyes really get open in college and you're in California, and then you you end up here in Miami, uh, not end up here, you come for a PhD program, and talk to me about what you see in Miami that you had not seen in other places as far as how, um, you know, how the African diaspora exists here and, and how black culture exists here. Yeah, well, first of all, I saw family because I not only came just for the school, but also because, you know, I'd been in California, which on the other side of the country, and I actually really enjoyed California quite a bit. But I had grown up in in the in Boston as a in a place where family was always coming in and out of your house and mm-hmm. right or sometimes you lived with them. I we didn't do sleepovers in Haitian culture. That was not a thing. But we oh, slept no. over our cousins. House. No, no, That's yeah, it was actually yeah, cousins yes. are okay outside of that. Cousins, uh, so, yeah, uh-huh. for sure, same Except thing. You too, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Cuban household, same thing. You know, uh, uh-huh. you you can stay there as late as you want, but uh, you better be home in bed. <laughs> so <laughs> I miss. It was so far away from family, like in the, that sense of family that had always been part of my life. So the the fact that University of Miami had this great Caribbean studies program and my relatives were like moving in droves and it started with my aunt in the 70s and then my parents and everybody started coming one after the other. I could be anchored in that while also pursuing my intellectual um, goals. And um, and at Miami, of course, um, it's the it's the thing about critical mass that you didn't I didn't have in growing up in Boston. The fact that you could have a population that's, you know, almost one million, if you think of all of um, uh, South Florida. Uh, one million Haitian people at that time and um, and add that to the Trinidadians and the Jamaicans <laughs> and the Cubans right right there's, um, a, there's and, much more there's much more of a um, of influence when it comes I mean culture political you name it it's the flavor of the place. Yes. It's the way that critical mass can um, affect the landscape. You know, Miami is one of those places you walk around. Everyone tries to think. Everyone thinks I speak Spanish. They just assume that you speak Spanish. <laughs> that they, you don't. You don't do that. You don't get that in other cultures. You get your cafecito. Um, there's lots of you know food goods offered in in Boston. I had there were two Haitian bakeries that we patronize in Miami. There are you know, 20, 25, if not more. You know, <laughs> right, and new ones every day. Go, Exactly. And they, it influences the landscape, Little Haiti, the way that space looks with its murals um, and the and the Iron Market art inspired architecture of the of the um, the marketplace there. Um, it was complete. It was like it was like finding home in a very different way because it was public rather than inside my home, inside the island home that I had in Boston. It was like they brought the island to the rest of <laughs> outside the home as well. There is, and I was there yeah. is something about you're driving by like the Little Haiti Cultural Center and just like that stretch, and you just feel like this, like this community really built has built something uh, significant here, like a, a cultural center, you know. 
Yeah, and it's unlike anything that you see in other places in the in this country as well. It's, it's unique, uh, and it's it's beautifully it's beautifully you know, self created. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't they weren't giving given money by the city of Miami to create this space, right? Right. Or by developers. Right. No, they built it comes themselves. Out. Yeah, it's completely vernacular. It comes from the people. So you know when you're here and you're and you're just totally embedded in this because you know I know that you were visiting family but you didn't get to grow up here so to speak. So how did that influence being back here and studying at UM getting your PhD? How did that affect your experience as you were you know later started working for History Miami as the chief curator? Yeah, the museum was foundational for me getting into the Haitian community mm. and becoming a part of it because they hired me to do research for an exhibition that they were creating. This is back when I was a graduate student called Haitian Percussion Tradition. I mean, the Caribbean Percussion Traditions, but I did the Haitian legwork of the research. Mm. So what I was doing was talking to um, voodoo drummers and musique racine, that's roots music, um, and um, compa drummers who were still practicing their um, their artistry. Uh, here in uh, South Florida, uh, which was great as a young in my 20s, right? Going around to all those bands and those ceremonies and stuff and just yeah, doing quote unquote research, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to know everybody in the process in the community because I had to ask a lot of questions and, you know, walk around in the neighborhoods and hang out with people. And so I, as part of that, I got to understand Miami's, um, particularly Miami's unique Haitian uh, community and the migrations of people who have moved there since the really early on because there were also Haitian people in Overtown during the early 1900s as well, but the the big waves that came after the 1970s um, and really became just a part of it. There's It became home beca because of having to do that work and spend time outside of my house now, right? Inside my home, I always felt at home uh, in Boston, but now I was publicly doing this, the same work, I think, that my parents were giving to me uh, inside the house, mm -hmm. uh, but as a as an ethnographer. And and how did that affect your work as you were as you were you know as your chief curator of, of history of Miami and you're trying and you're deciding you know what you want to put forward to the public you know it's part of that history that maybe you hadn't grown up with that you thought you know I wish other young people had 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 this kind of exposure. It um, it definitely affected um, the type of work that we take take on the the history of Miami has always had a strong folk life. Um, division and mm -hmm. I was the curator, I was originally the folk life curator there. And so my work was to be in the community doing community research and developing, um, collecting, collecting objects that reflected that community for posterity. So we can tell stories about them, that they were here and that they had an impact on Miami. Um, and also, um, to uh, put on exhibitions about about them. So not only do not not only do I am I loving all this culture, learning about it in school, right down the road at the University of Miami, and then um, and then studying it and doing research on the ground, I then get to do something with it, create some sort of a create uh, create a product, an important product that educates other people about it, the public, which is what I love about museums. You don't have to take an African American history class or Caribbean literature class. Only forty percent of right Americans even go to college, and do they even take those classes, right? Mm. So where else can you learn, right, about about Cuban history, uh, or or Santeria culture, or or, or African American foodways? Museums provide that important vehicle. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned history, which um, uh, you know obviously we're the Florida has has been involved in this conversation about um, teaching um, teaching African American history and teaching Black history, and you know the. Uh, 
the, the AP course that was recently uh, amended to have fewer sections of it because the, the Florida governor and the administration uh, had an opposition to it. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and, and how, that, how that interacts in a way with the work that you've been trying to do in your career. I think that I'll just say that I think that we're in interesting time times, right? And mm. thank God for museums. I, that's a, as much as I think I'll comment on that politically. Right. Mm-hmm. And and let's uh, thinking more about the actual education of it. What would you like to see in schools as far as um, as far as education about the the black influence in um, in in America? Do you think? Are, do we need to see more of that? Yeah, what I think, um, it's very much related to my position at the National Museum of African American History and Culture mm-hmm. as the supervisory curator of the African diaspora, is to think about what it means to be, uh, to think about, in, in, to be inclusive in a black space. So that's what we do when we think about inclusion at our museum. We think about what does it mean to be inclusive from a black perspective? Are we... Um, what identities are we not thinking about when we talk about blackness in the United States? What mm. ethnicities are part of that? What gen, what gender dynamics are, are, are need to be accounted for? Um, and that's a special place to be able to be in. Uh, and so we, one of the reasons I got hired is because of all my time in Miami, because I could speak to a black perspective that was different than what would be in South Carolina, for instance, or in California, if you were African-American there. The unique space, that the new things that are happening on the ground with black immigrant Americans in Miami are and the transnationalist transnational ties and global ties um, that are part of that uh, was a perspective the museum very much wanted to bring into the the work that they do right yeah definitely and I think that's that's so interesting about how you take this experience that you have in Miami and then broaden that in other words uh, uh, take it to a broader audience rather um, how do you feel like being a, the chief curator here for for five years informed your work in DC? That was foundational, mm. absolutely. I mean, for one thing, I was new to museums when I started as the Folklife Curator in 2004, and um, I learned everything that I needed to learn about uh, being being a curator from my time there um, and being able to mount exhibitions. And be, they, we, uh, History Miami is a medium, considered a medium-sized museum because mm. it has, you know, staffs in the 20s and 30s. That's, that's considered a medium-sized museum because most museums are teeny tiny places with one or two people in this country. Um, and then there are the mega museums like like mine, like I'm in right now. Mm. Um, and um, I got to do wear a lot of hats, you know, um, after I moved up to the executive team, see it abroad at a, at a broad big picture level what you know, what, what it takes to run a museum. And I could bring all of that experience just from working at History Miami to coming to the National Museum of African American History and Culture and understand all of the different dynamics that are happening that um, between all our different departments. I understood the collecting side, how to put an exhibition together. I was just learning to do it at a different level. So there's that experience there. But there's also the fact what I, I mean, my role is to pay attention to when we are not pulling out, you know, hmm. diasporic information in our exhibitions and our programs. Like how can we bring greater nuances to a question that we might ask um, Lovia uh, Jai, for instance, who um, who's a famous uh, an influencer, right? But she's of Nigerian descent. What kind of questions that we ask her that can bring out those diasporic influences and not just the standard questions about her work? Because that's important to her, her to her too, and it's important for us as a museum to acknowledge the diversity of Black identities. Right. And can you talk a little bit a little bit more about those um, uh, those challenges? You know, those key elements that that you had to learn uh, if you were going to curate. Um, you know curating a museum and curating an exhibit at that level. 
Yeah, those challenges. That's interesting. Um, I mean, the, the budgets are incredibly different um, uh, compared to what we had access to at History Miami um, than here at the Smithsonian. Sure. And so we have much, we also have much larger teams that work on, on creating exhibitions. And so the processes are different and the work is more segmented um, into different, in, in many, many, many places in different people's hands. Um, and so I had to learn, I had to learn different procedures and processes. And of course, now there's also the fact that I'm, um, the Smithsonian is a federal entity so there are all sorts of bureaucracy and government forms and paperwork to, f to complete to get mm. anything as simple as having someone come to do a speaking engagement right um, so I had to learn all of that um, but I also think I learned what is here I learned um, the gold standard of how to do things because they're meticulous at the Smithsonian they are meticulous about caring for objects they are absolutely and they have the funding to be able to take care of objects they are uh, serious about doing quality research and we, whereas um, at History Miami sometimes I had to cut corners just to be able to make something happen within a certain amount of time or within a certain budget uh, and so if anything I've upgraded my um, skill set and my knowledge of how to um, how to do curatorial work well I definitely want to get into more about the exhibits that you've been able to present uh, at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in DC but we're gonna take just a little break we're speaking with Joanne Hippolyte um, she's a curator at the Museum of of African-American history in Washington, D.C., and was the chief curator at History Miami. We'll be back with her in just a moment. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias. Our guest today is Joanne Hippolyte, and she's a curator at the Museum of African-American History in Washington, D.C., with strong ties to Miami. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. Joanne, so talk to me a little bit about some of the work that you're most proud of um, at the uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. Sure, I'll talk to you about one of my favorite things, which is my gallery on the uh, fourth floor of the museum. It's called Cultural Expressions, and the fourth floor is the culture floor. So, um, and I'm on a, a team of curators that are called culture curators. All the curators divided by art, history, and culture. So, how great it is that I got to fall into culture when I love culture so much. Wow, absolutely! It's been such a part of my life. Um, cultural Expressions looks it's a permanent exhibition, which means it's on display for you know 15 to 20 years, and it's uh, the the permanent exhibitions. There are 13 of them at the museum are the core experience um, that people have when they come um, and uh, we have temporary galleries as well two of them so those were you have shows that are just there for uh, six months to a year and then they turn over for something else but the uh, the core experience is in the um, uh, permanent galleries so cultural expressions permanent um, exhibition and it looks at five ways in which black people express culture and I got to think about it diasporically so it looks at um, food ways culture and cuisine right we were just talking about that language the power of the word mm -hmm. um, style image and identity which is about how African black people style themselves you know um, um, clothing fashion as well as you know uh, beauty and hair um, what an exciting and, way to try to, to try to really put your arms around and really capture a flavor of of all these kind of major ways um, that that black people have in influenced uh, American culture. Tell me about how do you go about doing something that massive at, a, at frankly, at a, at a museum that's that's so rich in history? How, how did you start to do that? 
Yeah, well, you only have so much space, and that's the thing with any exhibition. How much space do I have to tell a big story? And then you have to think, you do the research and make sure you understand it um, holistically, and then you have to make, refine down to what are some of the most important points. So there are many types of cultural expressions, including uh, music, right? And, um, and But those were being done by other galleries, so we didn't have to worry about them in cultural expressions. Um, so that was getting down to five was first, five out of like 100, right? right. Uh, types of cultural expressions. And then even going within there we had some some basic understandings we wanted to do we wanted to show geographic diversity so that you didn't get stuck thinking about language like in terms of like the language that's spoken in new york right uh, or, oh, or let's, slang right yeah. as opposed to yeah let's as opposed to what's going on yeah in uh the georgia sea islands right with galagichi language so show range was a big thing interesting so mm-hmm. it, so it's kind of going inside each one of those five things language is a is a great one so Give me an example there of how you guys try to show that 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 range. So like you said, mm. New York, New York and, and South Carolina are pretty two two extremes. Two extremes because, you know, um South Carolina this um in the Sea Islands, the Georgia Sea Islands and um which also border also on Florida as well. They they were um, cut off from the mainlands quite a bit. So their language, much like in Haiti with Creole, the language retentions, the African retentions in the language are very, very strong. Um, and they speak differently than what you would hear at New Orleans, um, African-American speaking, right? Because they would have more of a French influence on their language. So we talk about that, that depending on where you grow up in the United States, you may eat different food, obviously, because your, your, your landscape is different. You may be closer to water and that may influence what you eat on a regular basis and but also you're gonna uh, how you speak is going to sound different and so today we talk about that in terms of accents but we're just talking about African Americans in in the gallery and so we're all, not just talking about accents but we're also talking about um, who's where your descendants right who your where your parents might be from and how that might influence and we also talk in language about the use of language like what its purposes are and for African Americans there's been a strong like liberal use for um, a building community and um, hearkening back to tradition and culture. For instance, if you go into churches and you hear the type of language stylistics mm. that are practiced by preachers there, the call and response that the um, the audience, um, it, you know, the worshipers um, do with in, in engagement with the preacher. And we're also talking about the uses of, of it for power. One of my favorite aspects of the um, language section is the um, piece on Wiley College and Texas Southern University who had really great debate teams during the early 1990s hundreds and they would go into the south and they would debate white predominantly white teams and they would win they had a really great cat um great track record of winning and what they talked in their um, memoirs about you know they would go into these spaces in the south where people thought they were completely ignorant and inferior and then they would hear these students right debating um, topics in mainstream American English in very sophisticated ways and winning debates and they would change minds just from that just from being able to speak regular old, you know, mainstream American English. Right. And mm-hmm. and how important to be able to capture some of these things on a on a national scale where you can tell some of those stories that might that that maybe someone didn't grow up hearing or or might have been lost if not for being captured in a place like a museum. Exactly. Right. Not not a lot of people know that history it's anymore because time um, passes and those stories get back forgotten, even if they were written in the newspaper then. Um, so it, it takes museums to sort of and history books and scholars to help um, chart that legacy and remind us of where we were and, and how far we've come. Uh, you mentioned also one of these other pillars that you studied was was style. And I know that you've been uh, really looking into the um, the artist Art Smith and how he expressed 
culture in jewelry. Will you talk yeah. about that a little bit? You've really done your homework on me. Art Smith is my I have man. Great, I yes. have great producers. <laughs> yeah, Art Smith is a mid-century modernist jeweler who also is an immigrant American. He was born in Cuba because his family had moved from Jamaica to work in the Cuban sh- in the figure sugar factory in which, Cuba. Which, which in and of way, itself is is yeah. very interesting. A, a Jamaican Im- a Jamaican immigrants growing up in Cuba. Exactly. And tons of Haitians were there as well. So there was a lot of inter-Caribbean migration into Cuba to work in the sugar fields. He ends up moving with his family to Harlem and um, his family had gotten involved, believe it or not, with the UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association, which is Marcus Garvey's organization in Cuba. So people don't often realize there was a strong UNIA in in that part of the world as well. And then they move over to the United States and they become a part of the UNIA in um, in New York um, and he goes to art school here and um, you know he has a learned sculpture and design and becomes um, one of the only black people you know who, part- who participated in what we call the mid-century modernist jewelry movement and what that really means is that these were hands handmade um, works um, craftsmen beautiful sculptural objects that he created and they were sold at Bergdorf's and Macy's and boutiques all over the country he had a shop in Greenwich Village um, from the 19 mid 1940s until the late 1970s and, and even just within that shop it's a microcosm of the United States because he was harassed because he was black and gay and he was in a predominantly Italian neighborhood in New York um, and he had to get protection from the police at some point but it's also this um, wonderful bohemian space where he can explore um, art, art creativity and artistry and he builds a strong clientele and uh, he's one of the few people who gets these wonderful museum exhibitions about them during his lifetime about his work as a craftsman. So I'm working very closely. I've been working to build a strong collection of his work and archival material related to him at the museum. So I think we should, of all people, we should be able to have, to be able to represent him and his significance. And and you bring up an interesting point too, which is um, breaking down that monolith further and further uh, of black culture. uh, And you talk about someone who's a history of black and gay and, and those voices that have not been traditionally heard from as much either. Yeah, exactly. Very important to be able to speak to um, the discrimination that they've experienced over time. Um, this, it's not it's not like it is today, and even today it is even it, it is even great. But again, inclusion is really important, and reflecting the fact that these are communities that have always been with us and have made major contributions to their cultures and to the United States is um, is vital. And tell me about some of those jewelry pieces. Like, what is it that makes them that makes them special? How do you explain an Art Smith piece? I think it has a lot of jazz um, because he used to listen to jazz music the whole time. And he was so all of his work, especially his earrings, have a lot of mobility and swing to them. Mm. They are he believed the body was a component in design. That's actually really important when you think about how black bodies are so dismissed in this country. Right. Our black bodies are torn apart or violated or uh, or destroyed in so many different ways. But he really believed in the body as an important aspect of design. There is no ring. There is no earring. Right without the body itself right mm. uh, as the as a basic component and valued the body um, and, and celebrated uh, motion kind of is what you're saying like those move, earrings that moved and what have you. correct yeah mobility like mobile like you would see with mobiles and just you know, the waves and the movement like you would you can almost see the the rhythm in it you like, can you can feel the whole movement in them and and, mm-hmm. and uh, even as they're moving about uh, you know I'm curious about because you obviously this is a this is another um, 
kind of Caribbean representation um, in, in the museum. Can you talk about ways that uh, Black South Florida shows up in the museum, things that, that folks might recognize that, or maybe a, a piece that's been brought from South Florida that, that uh, is expressed there for, for a national audience? Yeah, I'm very thrilled to have brought in the uh, a costume from Bahamas Junkanoo Review, which is a, a Junkanoo band in South Florida that I knew, I've known for a long time from my time in history in Miami there. And, you know, Junkanoo has been practiced in South Florida. I mean, it was there long before the Goombe Festival, and that, you know, that went away after a while since I... Well, since the, I was visiting Miami in the 1980s, um, and it's a one, it's a beautiful costume. It's a strong representation of uh, carnival traditions and um, that are uh, that people have brought with them from the Caribbean to the United States and are still practicing. Um, and it's on. You can actually see it on our catalog, our online catalog. Uh, it's beautifully photographed, and it, it's um, it's used in a book that just came out called Musical Crossroads, which is about all of the different genres of music Black people have um, brought to this country, but also helped create and influenced and so we paid attention to um, Caribbean influences as well there's a photograph of Virginia Key Beach and oh, it's, wow. it's not it, yeah there's not you wouldn't think it was not the beach itself it's a it's the food it's the stand <laughs> oh. the actual concession stand and all the kids are, it's a famous photograph all the kids are sitting there and they're ordering their food and we just talk about um food right as a space as a contested space um the, in in cultural expressions it's not just the celebration of all the wonderful types of cuisines black people have helped develop and create here in the country but also the ways in which um uh food and uh sitting at the table is politicized uh so um why why um why uh, you had to sit you know not couldn't sit down at lunch counters or why we had to desegregate lunch counters um but also the enjoyment and the joy around food so all these kids um at the concession stand and enjoying what is a segregated beach right at the time um and making what they can of that and you talked uh, you've talked a little bit about um the the black reclaiming of the word soul food the creation of the word soul food is a way to claim like this is food that we had a hand in but but the the food of the african diaspora is is very wide and you get into that in the exhibit as well right I do. I talk about the fact that food is one of those places like music. It goes everywhere, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. traveling along with the people, uh, just like my, my Haitian uh, family bringing all their uh, recipes, right? And their goods. And those care packages you things. get from Haiti, those care right? packages. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so at the same time that people are landing here from all over the world, food goods are also moving in and out and being planted or replanted uh, as well. And so in the United States, you see uh, things like... Um, um, cobbler right peach cobbler is really uh one of the like i call one of the three staples of um uh <laughs> african-american desserts peach right. cobbler banana pudding red velvet cake right yes uh, peach oh, cobbler the is three uh, yeah, exactly. But it comes to us from the British. It's the British who brought that tradition of they loved hot fruit, right? They just did. They put together, they used to make, um, to try to create that sense of flavor and taste, they would um, bake fruits uh, in, during colonial times and put a layer of um a layer of uh, bread or cornbread or flour um, over it, dough over it. That nice and that crusty gets, top there, yeah. Exactly. But then that gets taken up, right, by African-Americans who are making most of the food in the South. Let's let's be clear about that prior to the um, the Civil War. Um, and um, and they make it their own. They add their own ingredients and their flavors to it. And peach cobbler becomes the one that they adopt as theirs, no more so than any other cobbler. Uh, and there, there are lots of cobblers. You know, I, I love that, that this is something that you have created that folks can go and visit specifically at this museum, again, which is, is so rich. Um, are, there, are there ways folks that, 
that folks can experience this online? Is there a, is there a way that that uh, they can begin to kind of learn some of this um, the museum? Yeah, online? one of the you know I guess good things about the pandemic is we really ramped up our um, online presence on our website, and so you can go to our website and you can learn uh, a lot more about my exhibit and also all the other exhibitions um, than you could before the pandemic. We've uh, We've brought more resources um, onto those website pages so you can read and, and also see some of the objects. Uh, we have a, a great project called a searchable museum, which allows you kind of to walk through some of our actual exhibition spaces. We're slowly um, getting through all of the permanent galleries for that, but right now we've done the Making a Way Out of No Way exhibition and the Slavery and Freedom exhibition. Um, and what that did was give people an opportunity to be there even while we were closed, right? Or to be there if you live in Nepal, right? And you have access to the internet. So you don't always have to come to learn, right? And to, and to know, um, and to see See the wonderful things that we're trying to show you and things like the the art smith jewelry uh some of that is available on, on the website as well right yeah absolutely you can search our catalog for all the different types of objects we have now, our objects is a great story too you know we're the only museum at the smithsonian to have started without a founding collection it's like let's start a museum but wait we have nothing to show <laughs> most museums start with a collect a huge collection that a donor a collector has has built built and that's the founding um a material that you use to create it. All, all us, all of us curators, all twenty of us, had to go out and find stuff representing five hundred years of Black history in this country. Talk oh about my gosh, how a task, right? Yeah. How long was but that it, in process? What was what was that process like? It, the museum was founded in 2005, so it was really in process. We started getting, um, it was founded le through legislation in 2003, and we got our first staff person in 2005. So between 2005 and 2016, where we were open, there was a ton of collecting going on. 50% of our collection is donated to us by the public, which means that people came to us and said, I've got this painting by... Um, Jacob Lawrence and you're building this museum and I really think you have it. I have my great grandmother's freedom papers and I really think that this museum needs to have it. So we're humbled by that. Amazing. Talk to me then with, with all of this that you've been able to create, what, what are you working on now that, that really is driving you at this point? Cause you guys have, is it uh, kind of exp um, exposing folks to this, this, um, uh, this exhibit that you guys, this permanent exhibit you've created? What's, or what are you passionate about right now? What are you working towards? I'm working on a book on Art Smith that'll be out in a few years, but I'm also working on a really special exhibition that won't open for a few more years. Um, it doesn't have a title yet, but it's on um, HBCU museums and collections, so historically black college and university museums and collections. Be even before the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History was built, and even before some of the major black museums that came out of the 1960s, the ones that you see in Detroit and Philadelphia and Chicago were built. It was these historically black colleges that were collecting and preserving their own history, the objects of their history, the art before art museums, because predominantly white institutions didn't regard um, African-American artists as sophisticated enough to creating good work. And now they buy it, of course, in millions for millions and millions of dollars. Um, but it, that, it, <laughs> it was those places, yeah, that yeah, was doing the collecting. It, it reminds me of, a, of a, uh, Dorothy Jenkins uh, down here with uh, the founder of the Black Archives, who you know had so much history at like Spelman College. Like that's, you know, when she first met uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I was running 100%, 100. It's just like that. Can can you draw a line from a from a, a Dr. Jenkins to what you're doing today? Like in other words, that that of that passing down that information from generations and continuing to build on it and bring it forward. 
I mean, Dr. Dr. Fields, Dr. Jenkins Fields is a, is a legend in South Florida and yes, the Black Archives is such an incredible resource and will always be that. And it's a community resource. It's done by a person who was in the community and understood that community and, and learned its history and learned the archival practices and history and began to collect. No one was collecting that information for posterity, not even History Miami, because we didn't have the inroads in, the, in that community. Although, uh, and the, the tremendous resource that is for historians today and scholars today is um, just, um, there's, you can't put a value on it. It's completely invaluable. I will say that we, we rely on it, even at our museum. We go to all the small community archives and the HBCUs, and we look at that all the material that was done by individuals with a passion and a recognition that this history needed to be saved, right? It needed to be uh, so that we could tell our own stories later on. Um, and uh, we could tell other stories about America than what we were learning in textbooks at the um, in elementary textbooks for a long period of time. Um, so their work is foundational to Black studies, uh, African American studies, and really American studies in general. Uh, well, the the last theme is uh, leaning into Black joy at uh, in in your exhibit. In the last uh, couple couple seconds here, in the last thirty seconds here, tell us about a moment of Black joy that's that's uh, come come to you because of this experience uh, it's the vibrancy uh, if you look at my my gallery has a 30 uh, 3d ring at the top that's all moving images that reflect all of the different the five sections and um, the when you see those faces and the different hairstyles and the different cuisines and the and the the dancing um, all you see is the vibrancy and the resilience and the ways in which Africans um, remade themselves right in a, um, and and not only just remade themselves but also made the country they were in so much more interesting and vibrant and, and beautiful um, and that that I think is is profoundly moving and one of my favorite parts of the of the gallery and, and my experience working with the museum. Well, Joanne Hippolyte, uh, jo you are the uh, curator at the Museum of African American History in Washington D.C. Thank you so much for making the time to spend with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's Sundown for Monday, February 27th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Merch is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundown's engineer. Coming up tomorrow on the program, a Miami native wanted the city to have its own creation myth, so he wrote one. Andrew Otasa's new book is a satire of Miami's creation story. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.